Hi, this is George at RPG Calligraphy, and you are listening to Tale of the Manticore. The following podcast is intended for a mature audience. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome back to Tale of the Manticore, Season 2. Like the creature from which it takes its name, Tale of the Manticore is a mashup, a crossbreeding between two different species of storytelling. Here, you will find the unpredictability of old-school RPG paper and dice games with the storycraft of a dark fantasy novel. No character is sacred, and no character will be spared if the dice decide their fate is at hand. According to lore, the tale of a manticore is barbed with cruel iron spikes. There will be much pain in the days ahead. Last time on Tale of the Manticore. Chapter 13 starts with level ups, but not just for the PCs. As Catsbane reaches level 2, the NPC Romola achieves level 4. After rolling for new hit points, new spells, etc., we learn of Romola's backstory, how she was abducted by some kind of witch when she was just a child, and how she was chosen to be an apprentice to learn the secrets of the swamp. When we catch up with the PCs, they're just ascending into a dungeon hidden under the foundation of the abandoned sawmill. Although it seems empty, they proceed with caution all the same. Shawnee finds a carrion crawler in a cell, but her quick thinking allows her to act before it can attack her. She slams the cell door shut and traps the foul creature within. The episode ends with Tamlin privately recalling the parable of imprisonment taught to him by Father Luton some time ago. The PCs have no way to know this, but there is a trap in the hall leading past the room where Shawnee trapped the carrion crawler in the last episode. Stepping on a small button hidden in among the flagstones of the floor will cause a weighted wooden rack of metal spikes to swing down from a recess in the ceiling where it has been hidden. Yellowfly's gang can be assumed to be taking a certain amount of caution. After all, they know this is a weeping eye hideout, and so it's reasonable to think that they would advance slowly, specifically watching out for danger. On the other hand, passing the door to the cell with the knowledge that there's a dangerous creature on the other side would be distracting, to say the least. This is especially true for Shawnee, who actually saw the thing. Unfortunately, Shawnee is the only one who has any real skill in detecting traps like this one. The pressure plate is located in the center of the hallway floor, three quarters of the way to the door at the far end. Normally, a second level thief who carefully searches an area for traps would have a 15% chance of success. I'm knocking this down to 10% to account for the various factors I mentioned before. The other PCs will have no chance to detect the trap. However, I will allow a saving throw in the case the trap is triggered for the unlucky character to get out of the way. Okay, getting my D percentile ready. I'm looking for a 10 or below. Yeah, I know, I know. Good luck with that. If she fails, I'll roll off mic to see who triggers the trap. The BX rules say that any character who comes across a trap like this one has a 2 in 6 chance of triggering it. It's not automatic. Of course, they all have to pass through this hallway, so it would take a miracle for the trap not to be sprung by someone. Here's Shawnee's roll to notice the pressure plate. Yeah, I've got a 60. She has no idea it is there. Chapter 14, 
Part 1 Day 50 Noon Party status Yellowfly 15 of 15 hit points Tamlin 7 of 7 Cole 12 of 12 Shawnee 8 of 8 Catsbane 6 of 6 Spells available Tamlin has prayed for Cure Light Wounds Catsbane has memorized Read Languages and Magic Missile Yellowfly went first as he usually did with Shawnee behind him now holding Tamlin's torch in one hand and her sword in the other she could not help but be distracted by the knowledge that only a few inches of wood stood between her and the horror on the other side of the cell door. Behind Shawnee came Cole, then Catsbane holding the second torch, and finally, Tamlin. Yellowfly, oblivious to the deadly rack of spikes above his head, stepped right over the little pressure plate, completely unaware of its presence. Shawnee, hugging the right wall to put as much distance between herself and the monster in the cell, did likewise. Against the odds, both Cole's and Catsbane's feet did not make contact either. That left only Tamlin to bypass the hazard before all of them would be safely to the other side. Chartoon must have been smiling on his faithful servant that day, for Tamlin's foot only just missed the button. With no hint that they'd been in any danger, that there was a rack of deadly spikes suspended right above their heads and held in place by a little wire pin, the companions reached the door at the end of the hall. Shawnee pressed her ear to the wood and listened hoping beyond hope that she would not hear insectile chittering beyond. She shook her head, indicating that she had not heard anything, and stood back for Yellowfly to open the door. He did so, and the others heard him curse as the details of the next room resolved in the glow of their flickering torchlight. Mother's Grace, what sort of people are we dealing with? Seeing Yellowfly lower his sword arm was a relief, but when Tamlin, the last of them to enter, saw what was inside, the cleric felt a coldness pass through him. They were in a rectangular room, 20 by 30 feet long, with only one other door. The air was stale, with the faint smell of urine and excrement. This room seemed to have had only one function. It was another prison, but designed to hold several occupants. There were manacled chains hanging from rings set in two corners of the room, but that is not what the companions found so disturbing. The room featured three iron cages, each of them a simple cube of latticed flat iron rods. They were clearly designed to hold children, as each was just four feet to a side. Mercifully, the cages were empty. There were no other features of interest in the room, so Yellowfly crossed to the other door. He was trying and failing to avoid thinking of what might have gone on in this place. Anger kindled in his breast, and he clenched his jaw. He threw caution to the wind and kicked the door open. If there was anyone from the Weeping Eyes here, he would hack them down where they stood. But he was not ready for what he found in the next chamber. As the door banged open, his wrath disappeared, and he gasped, involuntarily pressing his free hand over his heart. This room, unlike the last, had no exits. This was the final room in the dungeon, but just like the previous one, it had a single, clear purpose. He stood in the doorway and addressed his companions without looking back. Torture chamber, he sighed. His shoulders slumped a little as he entered, and reluctantly, the others followed behind him. Cole took in his surroundings with utter disgust, but was able to relax a little when he saw that the various devices and contraptions in the room were all intended to be used on adults. He could tell by the size. Most prominent was an Iron Maiden standing against the wall. It was Cole's height and featured a sculpted relief of a grim-faced woman on the lid, which was closed. 
He prayed that it was unoccupied. There were other implements whose function ranged from the obvious to the inscrutable. A wooden chest with a dozen holes drilled into the sides and top seemed to have an obvious function. In one corner, a low table of dark wood supported a collection of thumbscrews, needles, and pliers, as well as something that looked like a cross between a grape press and a helmet. The press was not made of the usual wood. This thing was iron, and like the Iron Maiden, it had been ghoulishly decorated. The helmet was styled to look like a dog's head. Cole's fingers touched the lightly scarred skin of his throat as he contemplated this terrible device and what the presence of the chin rest attached to the base implied. Just looking at it made his teeth hurt. Suddenly, he wanted very badly to leave. Well, that's it then, he found himself saying. Anyone else want to get out of here? Tamlin, with his face waxy and pale, nodded. Not just yet, said Yellowfly. This place makes me sick to my stomach, but we need to search through everything. Catsbane, open up that chest. I'll look inside this thing. The wizard crouched down in front of the box, while Yellowfly pulled the lid of the Iron Maiden open. Thankfully, both were empty. Not to be horrible, said Jeanne, standing behind Yellowfly, but I thought there would be spikes inside it. Isn't that how they work? She was right. Catsbane's box was clearly meant to hold a person. Its air holes made this purpose fairly obvious. The Iron Maiden had no such air holes, so the lack of spikes inside was something of a mystery. Yellowfly reached in and knocked on the back with his fist. It made a hollow sound. He pulled his arm out and looked to either side of the Iron Maiden. It had been securely bolted to the wall in four places. There was no way they would be able to move it. Now this is strange. Shawnee, bring a torch here. He stuck his head all the way in. Try to get some light inside, hmm? Normally in BX, when PCs search for secret doors, they only have a 1 in 6 chance to discover them, if there's anything to be found. But our PCs are fairly certain there is something behind the Iron Maiden, and so they're looking over a relatively small area. There's a keyhole located inside the device that would be hard to miss for anyone who is really taking the time to make a thorough examination, so I'm going to skip this check altogether. You ever wanted to play Shadowrun? You know, the cyberpunk tabletop game where man meets magic and machine? It's too hard though, right? Too crunchy? Too clunky? It's a lot of math. Wrong! Pink Fohawk is a Shadowrun 2nd Edition actual play podcast, played by the rules, but fast and loose, with all the 80s cyberpunk edginess you know and love, where the hair is big and the explosions are bigger. Follow the story of two rad Shadowrunners, making a name for themselves in the mean streets of 2053 Seattle. Tina Bonemeal, nine and a half feet of pure troll muscle, surveillance expert and aspiring actress. John Anderson, former company man with a resume shrouded in mystery and a black belt Nikito. Check out Pink Fohawk Podcast, available everywhere you listen to podcasts. Oh, here it is, said Yellowfly, pulling his head out of the Iron Maiden. He scratched at his light beard. We have a keyhole, but no key. Absurdly, his mind went to Tamlin's orphaned key. The one he wore is a holy symbol, but he dismissed the idea quickly without sharing it. Shawnee poked her head inside to see if she might be able to finesse the lock with one of her special tools. I think we need to give this place a thorough going over, even though chances are that when they abandoned this place, they took the key with them. Why do you think it's abandoned? asked Tamlin. 
You pointed out earlier that there isn't any dust, and the dregs in the wine bottle haven't dried up. Abandoned recently, I should say that, replied Yellowfly. If the place was still in use, I think it would probably have some occupants. At the least, I'd expect to find some supplies. Come on and help me lock down. You and Catsbane go back to the first room and check it again. The two men were about to re-enter the hallway, with its deadly trap still hidden in the ceiling, when Cole said, Wait, I think I might have an idea. The big man walked over to the table with the hideous dog's head torture device. He realized now that it was not shaped like a dog's head, but a wolf's. Yellowfly understood right away. Smart Cole, I think you might be onto something. Shawnee stopped fidgeting with the lock and pulled out of the Iron Maiden. Curiosity etched on her features. Yellowfly explained, Iron Wolf. Cole lifted the awful device and looked at it from various angles. Finding nothing, he turned it upside down. Ha! He made an exclamation of victory. There was a little cavity under the base of the device that held an iron key. It was held in place by a wad of wax. Well done, Cole, exclaimed Yellowfly, impressed. Cole couldn't help but smile. He rarely received compliments on his intelligence, and it felt good to have figured out something before the others had. The chunky iron key fit into the keyhole, and Cole turned it to the right. There was a satisfying click, and the back, or bottom, of the Iron Maiden opened on an invisible hinge and swung away, like a door, into another room. Tamlin handed Cole his torch, and the fighter entered first, followed by Yellowfly and Shawnee. Catsbane and Tamlin offered to wait outside, just in case the door were to somehow close and shut them in. They could also keep an eye on the cell that contained the carrion crawler and ensure that it didn't get out. Beyond the secret door, the three others discovered an office, with a desk, side table, two chairs, and a bookshelf, all arranged in a smallish 20 by 20 foot room. There were no obvious exits. Neither Shawnee nor Cole were able to read, so they busied themselves looking for further secret doors and other items of interest, while Yellowfly went through a stack of papers on the desk that were held down by a horseshoe being used as a paperweight. They didn't find any secret doors, but Cole found a metal box in the bottom drawer of the desk. It had some heft to it, and he could hear coins sliding around inside. Shawnee stopped him before he could shake it, and convinced him to set it on the side table where she could inspect the lock. In her thief's toolkit, she kept a little curved piece of glass that could be used as a magnifying lens. While it distorted her vision, if she got the light and distance just right, it allowed Shawnee to discover things her naked eye would otherwise miss. Cole held the torch and watched her work. Yellowfly had found an oil lamp in the top drawer of the desk, along with some ink and quills. He lit the lamp's wick from Cole's torch and sat down to read. There was a lot of paperwork to go through. Cole told his companions in the next room to get comfortable. It might take a while to sort through everything, he said. After half an hour, Shawnee was satisfied that the strong box was untrapped. It was firmly locked, however, and no one had turned up a key. They had looked in every crack and cranny, under the table, under the desk, checking the furniture for hollows, everywhere. The key could not be found. Yellowfly finally stood up and reported what he had learned from having read through all the paperwork. I might have something here, but I'm not really sure. Uh, most of these pages are not useful to us, but there's a few I can't read. Caspane, you're needed. The wizard entered. Unlike the other men, he did not have to duck under the frame of the secret door. Yellowfly handed him a sheaf of papers, and the wizard saw that they had been encrypted the same way the safe house owner's ledger had been. He began his incantation. Even as he spoke the words to the spell to summon the being from the outer planes, Catsbane could tell that the power dynamic between them had shifted. He sensed a kind of anxiety in the creature as their connection became complete and understood that it was afraid their relationship might come to an end. The creature valued the brief glimpses of the prime material plane it took through him tremendously. 
For it, experiencing a different reality through a human being's sensory filter was exotic beyond description. Perhaps where it lived, there was no sight, no sound, touch, smell, or taste. Catsbane realized that his bargaining power was greater than he had previously thought. Almost immediately, the being offered him more. Catsbane accepted, promising to call upon a new and different power in the near future. But for now, he only required the usual service. With the deal made, the third eye opened on his forehead, and its gaze scanned the room for a few seconds before settling on the written lines. His companions turned away in distaste as the wet eyeball flicked back and forth over the text. A few minutes later, it was over. The eye receded and disappeared. The slit in Catsbane's forehead closed up, and the magic user regained control of his body. Lists of names, he said. Uh, there seems to be some kind of pattern to them. He turned the paper around and pointed to various sections as he explained. The column here lists seven people. Actually, well, actually it's six. The cipher cleverly shows one of the names differently. E even though it's the same person listed twice in a row, the column on the right is a bit different. What are the six names on the left side, then? asked Yellowfly. His sword was back in its scabbard, and he had his arms crossed. The first name will not be a surprise. Bellic. The mention of the captain's name elicited grunts from the others as their suspicions were confirmed. These other five names uh, I'm not familiar with. Let's see, going down the list, the second name is Coleman, followed by someone named Little Ildar? D does that name ring a bell? No? Well, that's the one listed twice. Next is a Lord Skelling. I thought I knew most of the nobility in Silmoral, but that name is not known to me. Uh, then uh, a woman's name, I would think. Romola. Oh, this is an interesting one. I I'll explain what I mean in a moment. And the last name is? Maywell. It was clear from Yellowfly's face that this name was unfamiliar to him as well. You said the entry beside the female name was interesting. Is it that woman from the safe house? Uh, I, well, I'm not sure about that, but uh, I was going to say that beside her name is written the words boy, boy, girl. Once again, the duplicate words are coded differently. Whoever made this cipher really is particularly clever. Go on, Catspin. Yellowfly did not share the smaller man's enthusiasm for code design. Well, uh, that leads me to believe the column on the right is the list of captives. Put them together, and you've got captor on the left and captive on the right. It's a sort of puzzle, in a way. Not a terribly difficult one. Once you figure out a bit of it, you might also say that the left column is the buyer, and the right side is... Uh, Tenant, supplied Cole. Cargo, offered Charney. What are the names on the right side, then? Who did Bellic pay to be tortured in this place? Catsbane turned the paper back around, even though he had memorized the names. Stablemaster Zarin. Does that name mean anything to you? No, I've not heard it before. Lord Rabbit might have. We'll want to head back today. We won't get home until after dark. But I don't think we'll want to wait. Read the other pairs of names. As the spell had worn off, Catsbane could no longer read them, but he supplied them by rote anyway. The next pairing is Little Ildar and Shipwright Blakely. Catsbane waited to see if Yellowfly would show some recognition. When he didn't, the wizard continued. Then it's that same Ildar person again, with the name Aletta Kelman. Either of those familiar? The others shook their head, no. Lord Skelling and Millwright Vadrin? Go on, said Yellowfly after shaking his head. 
The next pairing is Romola, and then simply the words boy, boy, girl, with no names provided. Tamlin was listening at the outside edge of the secret door now. He thought of the three little cages in the other room and shuddered as he imagined what might have taken place in this dungeon. A deep sadness washed over him, and he felt a lump in his throat. But he was not prepared for the final name Catsbane uttered. Neither was Cole, but it was Tamlin who moaned audibly when he heard it. The last pair of names is Maywell and Brewer Luden. Dramatis Personae Tamlin Two years ago Tamlin sat down and let his feet dangle over the side. This was one of his favorite places to go and think. A little stone bridge that spanned a brook in a quiet part of town. The followers of Chartoon had made a shrine to their patron saint here. One reason they'd chosen the spot was that it was out of the way. Most folks never came to this part of Nepul. Another reason they might have claimed this bridge was for the little metal latticework tucked under it, where seven horizontal iron bars crossed with seven vertical ones. Seven was one of Chartoon's holy numbers, but whether the builders had intended it as a tribute was unknown, as was the purpose for the lattice. Perhaps it was to keep animals or fugitives from making a home under the bridge's protective arc. Perhaps not. At any rate, it now served another purpose. Latched to the iron grid were eleven padlocks. Their keys were out of reach, laying at the bottom of the brook under a layer of silt and other keys. It was traditional for the followers of Chartoon to throw one over their shoulder and into the waters while saying a prayer. Over the years, the Brook Bottoms collection of orphaned keys had grown to number in the dozens. You could just see their little teeth and handles poking out of the silt beneath the flowing waters. Deliverance in bondage, whispered Tamlin. He could hear Father Luden's voice clearly in his head. Chartoon learned a very precious lesson while in prison. I'd like you to think over this story, and the next time we meet, you tell me what you think it was. The previous day, the wise man had shared with him the parable of imprisonment. Tamlin took his charge to think over the meaning of Chartoon's ordeal very seriously, and had come here to think. Chartoon, make me wise, he prayed, tossing a key over his shoulder and into the water. It had once opened a gate, but the gate had gone to rust and had been replaced. No one had missed the key when Tamlin had taken it, deciding to save it until he really needed some guidance. Now was that time. Tamlin had thought hard about the parable of imprisonment, but had not been able to come up with a single idea why Chartoon might have wanted to stay in prison. The key made a little splash, and Tamlin looked to where it had broken the water's surface. It was sinking slowly to the sandy bottom when an ugly suckerfish swam by, giving the forward object a curious bump with its nose before swimming off. That fish, thought Tamlin, was a kind of prisoner. It couldn't leave the water. It would never experience the wind or the rain or the snow. It would never see a cow or a pig or a bird. A fish would never climb a mountain or look out from a high window. But if you took it out of the water to appreciate all the wonders of the world, it would thrash and struggle with every ounce of strength it possessed to get back into the water, to get back into its prison. Perhaps people were not so different. They could only experience the things the material world had to offer, even though they might wish for more. Tamlin wondered if they were allowed more, if they could know the secrets of heaven and the mysteries of times long past. Would they thrash like fish, desperate to escape what they had learned? After all, in a way, didn't all beings live in a prison of sorts? Nothing was completely free. Even the birds, so envied for their wings, could not survive the ocean. Perhaps, he thought, 
Chartoon realized that most people had it wrong. So many tried, desperately, to exceed their limitations through the accumulation of wealth, or of power, or of knowledge. The purpose of life, he realized, is not to constantly dream of escaping our limitations, but to accept them. For as big as a world, or as small as a dungeon cell, we are all, essentially, in bondage. The only thing that changes is the size of our cage. Chapter 14 Part 2 Day 50 Afternoon Party Status The party's status is unchanged with the exception of Catsbane, who has used his spell of Read Languages. I... I think I need some air. I need to get out of here. The others were in the secret room behind the Iron Maiden, so they heard Tamlin leave rather than saw him. He knows... He knew, actually, we both knew, Brother Luden, Cole tried to explain. Brother Luden? Catsbane thought he must have misheard. He's, he was, a prominent brewmaster in Nepule, but those who really knew him called him Brother Luden. He was a cleric of Chartoon, and he was like a father to Tamlin. They, they were, they were really close. I better go after him. Cole didn't wait for permission from Yellowfly, but handed Catsbane his torch and ducked inside the aperture of the secret door. He emerged on the other side just as Tamlin disappeared through the exit. Neither of the two men had any idea of the deadly trap that waited in the hallway, or that they would be risking their lives with each step. Thank you for listening to Tale of the Manticore. If you like what you've heard and would like to lend your support, there are lots of ways to help. You can recommend the show online or to friends. You can like and retweet episode announcements on Twitter. You can purchase One Shot in the Dark or the Pendulum World Building Tool, each priced at under two bucks, or pick up a copy of Encyclopedia Manticorica for free on DriveThruRPG. Finally, you can rate or review the show on your podcatcher of choice. Thanks to everyone who has supported the show in these ways. And by the way, I'd like to share the good news that One Shot in the Dark recently went electro on DriveThruRPG, so once again, thank you so much for your support. As usual, I'd like to share one of your generous reviews. This one is on Apple Podcasts and was posted by Ancient Healer. Ancient Healer writes, This is a wonderfully done combination of real play and storytelling. Season 2 is shaping up to be as good, if not better, than Season 1. If you haven't, make sure you listen to Season 1 as well. Totally different story arc and characters, and definitely worth the binge listen. Thanks so very much, Ancient Healer. Season 2 definitely has a very different flavor than Season 1. Now that I have a bit of podcasting XP, I might have lost some of the naivety and genuine sense of discovery that I started with in Season 1, but I've gained some things too. A bit more focus and a confidence in knowing what pitfalls to avoid. So I'm glad you're enjoying it. I know I am. Every step of the way. This episode features one of my favorite voice actors. Back in the role of Catsbane is Kyellen. Don't forget to check out his music on SoundCloud at soundcloud.kyellen-cc. It's excellent stuff. If anyone listening wants to get in touch with me, I'm on the usual socials, at Manticore Tale on Twitter, or Tale of the Manticore Podcast on Instagram. My email is taleofthemanticore at gmail.com. I also keep a blog where I post all kinds of show and RPG-related stuff, like maps, musings, crafts, and show notes. Recently, I posted the pendulum-generated history of Nalukar, though I should mention that it's not part of the world of Merith, and exists, at least for the time being, just to demonstrate how pendulum works. The adventure will continue on the next episode of Tale of the Manticore, the story where chaos rolls.
Are you the kind of person or unspeakable nightmare horror who likes actual play podcasts, but occasionally wants a break from all the high fantasy heroics? If so, you should check out Negative Modifier, an actual play podcast that specializes in darker, more mature games. You can find us on YouTube, Twitch, or more or less anywhere else podcasts can be found. 